The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org forward slash university. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 47th and 16th in Seattle's U District. All right, all right. Uh, Hey, welcome. Welcome out to the Inn. Uh, For those of you that don't know me, my name is Mike. Uh, I'm on staff here. I run our student leadership team, and I'm excited uh, to be here speaking tonight. I feel like every time I come and speak at the end, I learn something new about speaking. Last time I was here, I learned uh, don't wear a shirt that people can see if you're sweating profusely in the armpits, and I'll never do that again. Last time I was like, make sure you're doing this right. Um, and then this week, I learned don't start running, uh, like training for something the day before you speak, I went running yesterday, not that far, like two miles on a treadmill, actually. It wasn't too hard. Uh, today, I decided to run around Green Lake as well, and oh my gosh, my legs are sore, so if I just fall over, uh, bear with me. Just wait till you get 27, man. You start getting uh, a little bit old. Anyways, it's a good time of year, uh, February 16th. I know a lot of guys in this room are excited tonight. Uh, Valentine's Day is over, so you can start dating again. Um, I know that was a big... Big plan of mine in college, if you, could, if you could miss dating between Christmas and Valentine's Day and then pick it back up right after Valentine's Day, you missed present season, which is always nice. And, and if her birthday is like in January, you hit what I call the trifecta, and uh, it's, it's absolutely perfect. So uh, I'm just kidding. No guy in this room would ever do that, I'm sure. Uh, what else? February 16th, Lent. Like they said, Lent starts tomorrow, which means tonight is Mardi Gras. Going to have a little party up in here tonight. Uh, that's right. Mardi Gras. Uh, I love Lent. Personally, I love the challenge uh, to take on the idea of just drinking water for Lent. I think that Lent is a great time, uh, these 40 days that lead up to Easter, where it helps us understand our need for Jesus in our life. I know that for myself, I've tried to be uh, very creative with Lent. I love Lent. I think it's a good time. And I always try to do something new. One year, I I decided to give up elevators for Lent. I was just going to walk up steps everywhere I went. And let me tell you, it definitely made me realize my need for God. You, know, you check into a hotel and they put you on the 42nd floor. And I was like, oh my gosh, God, I need you so bad. <laughs> so bad right now. Um, uh, you know, but I, I totally um, believe that Lent's a, Lent's a good thing. If you've never tried something for Lent, either giving something up or maybe adding something on, you know, taking on a time where you're setting aside time to spend uh, with God or spend doing something intentionally, I think is a very healthy thing. Uh, to do during Lent, so I definitely recommend it. Although I was talking with a guy the other day, I was like, hey, so you thinking about doing anything for Lent? And he's like, oh, you know, I think I might want to lose 10 pounds for Lent. And I was kind of like, uh, not really the point, but um, it's not New Year's resolution, you know? It's not like, oh man, I've, I missed out on my New Year's resolution, so I'll, I'll do something for Lent, you know, I'll get in shape again. Um, for Lent, uh, whatever. Um, Anyway, tonight, out at the end, we're continuing our series uh, called All Covered by Grace, which is walking through the book of Romans. Uh, Romans, a letter that the Apostle Paul, uh, a guy about 2,000 years ago, wrote uh, to the nation of Rome, and specifically a couple cities and, and um, organizations of people within uh, Rome. And, and the, one of the big points of this book is this idea of grace, this idea that we're saved uh, by grace through Jesus Christ dying for us. And, and that's, what he's, that's what Paul is communicating uh, to the Romans. And this idea of an umbrella is the image that we're looking at, uh, as we have this umbrella of grace that covers all of us. And as we do a series of talks, there are all, there are all these different pieces that kind of come out from the center of this umbrella. And the center, of course, is 
Jesus, guys. The answer is always Jesus. You should know that. That's an easy one. Um, anyway, Jesus is the center of this umbrella that kind of ties this whole thing together, the center that everything points back to. And a couple weeks ago, uh, we got a chance to hear from our intern, Tracy, on Romans 8. And, and what a great um, passage that we see in Romans 8 where Paul says that he is convinced that nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of Christ. And then, and then next week, uh, you'll want to come back because our intern, Chris, is going to speak on Romans 12 which uh, he's going to do a great job with that text. You're going to want to hear that. And Romans 12 is another chapter that's just packed full of all kinds of important things from God. And, and, and Romans 8 and Romans 12, I mean, half the people I know have their, their life verse comes from one of these two chapters. And then right in the heart is where we're at today, right between these things, looking at Romans 11. And so we, we kind of have 9, 10, 11, and these three uh, chapters are, are tied together. Pretty good. And I'll be honest, Romans 11, when I first saw it, I was not really that thrilled about preaching on Romans 11. I even was looking at it going, what, what's the message in here? And so I went and talked with a guy named Dave Rohr, who's a pastor at the church here. And pretty smart guy. I was like, if anybody knows the message, I'll just go hang out with him. He'll tell me what to say. I'll go say it. This is going to be great. And we talked about it, and he said a few little things. And I was like, okay, Dave, but what is, what is the message? What's the message for college students? And he's like, you know, sometimes there just isn't a message. Sometimes it just is what it is. And I was like, well, thanks, Dave. Uh, certainly inspires me. Uh, so anyways, I guess we're done here. Let's close up. Uh, but, but the truth is, I left there and I was a little disappointed. Uh, but the more I sat in the text, the more I talked to some other people, uh, I discovered that there's a message in Romans 11. And I, I think it's, it's for college students. But I realized that this is definitely a message for me. It's a message that I need to learn how to apply to my own life. And so as we walk through this chapter in the book of Romans tonight, pay attention because there's something in here that's, that's hidden in this text that is, is too valuable of a thing for us to miss and just start looking for it. So if you'll give your attention tonight, we're going to crack into Romans 11 and look at what God has in store for us tonight. Let me pray as we get started here. God, um, I thank you for this text you've given us. God, even a way to, to see you uh, and learn more about you. Lord, I pray that tonight... We could, just, we could just hear your voice uh, and see the work that you are already doing in this place. We love you, Lord. And then we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're going to get right in. Uh, and the text we're going to start with is Romans 11, verse 11. 11, 11. Huh, make a wish. Um, that was really lame. Uh, huh. That was not in my notes. Um, and Romans 9, 10, and 11 are three chapters where after Paul speaks and he says, I'm convinced that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of, of Christ. And, and all of a sudden, everybody is under this umbrella. The Jews, who were God's chosen people to be a light to the rest of the world, um, they, they're under this umbrella. But also the Gentiles, also this other nation of people that hasn't been following God this whole time. And now he's saying, hey, this grace is for everybody. And, and while everyone feels good and accepted, all of a sudden you have this group of people, the Jews, who have been working as hard as they can their whole life to, to earn it, to do something right. And they're saying, I don't know. I don't know if I am convinced. I don't know if it is for me now that you're letting these other folks in. And so it's a little confusing, but uh, let's, let's read through Romans 11. Um, there we go. We're going to start in, in verse 11 tonight. All right. Again, I say... This is Paul talking. He says, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles. 
And as much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in my hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted. It's only a one word sentence. Granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Okay. What the heck are we talking about here? Um, We've got the Jews and the Gentiles. Okay, and, and like we said, what's, what's happening is that, that all of a sudden, the Gentiles are being, being grafted into this thing. They're being brought in to this idea of grace okay, for, for everyone. And, and they're being brought in, and, and all of a sudden, you see the Jews, where some of them are actually turned away because uh, they, they think if the, you know, if the Gentiles are being accepted, is, is it really for us? And there's this tension, and they kind of think that they're the select people. And it's kind of interesting because I think today we actually see some churches that, you know, uh, some churches think they're pretty select. I know some of you may be here for the first time tonight, and I know that there are some Christians that uh, kind of do things their own way. Um, I know that sometimes Christians do things that are a little weird, and I know I, I do too. But actually, I found this website online. I don't know if some of you have seen it. I started laughing when I found it. It's called Things Christians Like. Uh, and I looked at it, and I was like, oh my gosh, phew, I'm none of these things. But then I started reading, I'm like, uh-oh. Like, I'm totally this guy. But, but I found a few things I thought were pretty stereotypical that I thought were pretty funny. Uh, they're pretty stereotypical things Christians do. So I thought the first one is pretty funny. It's getting an exact definition of virgin from your pastor. I know that's something that happens a lot. I want to know exactly what it means to be a virgin. Anyways, uh, number two. Okay, hating on Halloween. I don't know if any of you guys grew up on the church, but I know the church I went to, they're like, we're going to have a harvest festival on October 31st because Halloween, not cool. Um, what else? Ooh, the tankini. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys have been in, in too many Christian circles, but it's kind of like, oh man, I'm a Christian. I can't wear this, you know, skimpy bikini, but a one piece, eh, gross. So I'll just wear a tankini and I'll have one inch of stomach showing. It's like the perfect Christian balance. The side hug. Classic. You can't have the full frontal hug in church. What's going on? got to have a side hug. Perfect. Um, what else? Okay, this one I actually... Uh, this one I actually have a little bit of a problem with. You know how it is. You ask someone, hey, I really uh, could use your help on this. And, and you know they want nothing to do with it. But they're like, let me pray about it. Um, I'll, I'll get back to you. And you're very confident they're going to say no. Um, what else? Okay, here's an interesting one. Subtly finding out if you drink beer as well. I know for me, uh, in college, when I started really uh, wanting to follow God more, I started had to figure out, you know, do Christians drink? And, and you, you know, and, and so I think there was a funny example on the website that said, you know, you go to a party and you're like, hey, dude, did you see that Corona box in the back? And you kind of, you know, don't know what to say. So, and then the other guy's like, yeah, I mean, I can't believe that. We should probably leave. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we should probably leave. <laughs> That's not cool. Um, you know, that's something I think Christians do. What else? Okay, this is an interesting one. 
Now, those of you, most of you know the GTR is the deter- or define the relationship. The GTR is the God define the relationship. Um, you know, when, when you're not feeling it, and so you try to bring God into the picture, like, I really feel like God is leading us apart. Um, <laughs> sorry, this might actually happen for some people, but I think that sometimes we're like, oh, I, just, I feel like God's leading me to go to a foreign country somewhere that you're not. And I think that's something Christians do. I think it's, uh, anyways, um, pretty funny website. I thought I'd take some of their stuff. But, uh, but it's, it's stuff Christians do. And back in the day, the Jews had some things that they did that were very select to their culture. And, and all of a sudden, when the, when the Gentiles are, are being let in, you see the Jews actually become, become angry because it doesn't look the way that they thought things were supposed to look. And they start to become angry with God. And as I, as I read this more and more, I realized this is the story that's going on in the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 15. And the next text I want to look at comes from Luke 15 tonight. And I want to make a parallel to the Jews and the Gentiles. And some of you may have heard this story before. Okay, in my Bible, it's called the parable of the prodigal son. And as we look at this, I want you to give it one of two names. Okay, I want you to either call it the two lost sons, because we're going to look at two sons in this story. And I think that they're equally lost. And the other one, a guy named Tim Keller, he's a pastor uh, out in New York, and uh, he, he wrote a book called The Prodigal God, and, and I really like that book. We're actually going to reference him a few times tonight. But he says, uh, he calls it the story of the prodigal God because uh, prodigal actually means reckless, which uh, the son will see, the younger son in this story is reckless. He takes the money, he runs off, and he spends it recklessly. But there's also a father in this story, and that father represents God, and, and we actually see a reckless God. He's so reckless with his love for us. He loves us so incredibly much, and in this story, the father loves his sons so incredibly much that, that he's reckless with his love in a way that we wouldn't normally see. So as we look at the text tonight uh, from Luke 15, pay attention to those two things. All right, we're going to jump right in. Um, Luke 15, verse 11, Jesus was talking and, and he says, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And just to let you know, uh, any time that, that a father would pass away, his sons would uh, inherit all of his money. And so basically to say, I want your money now, was saying, you're as good as dead to me. I wish you were dead. I want your money. Pretty, pretty powerful thing to say. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. I want to stop right there. Uh, and I want, I want you to know that, that in this culture, this was a big thing. This was a big thing for the father to actually take off running, running down the road toward his son. In this culture, if someone said, you know, if someone did something that offended you, much less told you, I wish you were dead because I want your money, 
They should have come to you, waited at your feet, come all the way to your porch and begged you for forgiveness until you thought they were repentant enough. And the father, he, he doesn't do that. He doesn't sit there and wait on his porch. He actually takes off and he runs when he sees his son coming because he loves him so incredibly much, even though he's probably going to be ridiculed by his friends for doing that and people in his community because it, it's, not, it's not cool to go off running. It's cool to stay there and wait for someone else to beg for forgiveness. I made a diagram for anyone that can't understand. Uh, basically... Sitting on your porch, staying there, very cool, okay? That was a cool thing to do. Um, running, running down towards someone, not cool, okay? Um, except that Chris Polk is awesome, but running, not the cool thing to do, okay? And, this, and then this last picture, um, this guy that was walking on a chicken, just weird. Um, okay, but back to the story. Okay, we pick this story up uh, in verse 21. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, uh, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Also, uh, another thing that was put uh, aside his pride was to go and have to beg his son. His son should have have come in. And so, uh, again, a picture of the father's love. Uh, for us and for his son, is, is going out and, and, and getting his son and inviting him in. Um, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Okay, I know it's a lot of text. Okay, and to tie this back into the Jews and the Gentiles, I want you to see the correlation here. Okay, the, the, the Gentiles were this people that were, they were far off in a distant land and, and when grace comes... And they, and they turn and they decide, hey, I know we haven't been acting all that good, but, but, but I'm going to come back and accept this grace from the Father. Much like the younger son, there's a party going on for them. And, and then you have, <clears throat> um, you have the older son, you know, much, like, much like the Jews that have there, been there trying to earn it as best they can. And when the younger brother is invited in, they're upset. They're angry all of a sudden at the Father. They're angry with God. Why? Because to them, the Gentiles don't deserve it. The Jews are mad because they've spent all their time earning God's love, trying to earn salvation. And now it's being offered to anyone, no matter how bad they've been. Okay, now I want to I actually look at this idea of two brothers. It's a, pretty, uh, it's a pretty common thing, actually. I don't know uh, if this works for girls too, for sisters, but for brothers it's pretty common for one of them to be that person that's trying to earn things uh, back home just by being good and someone that's, that's off on their own trying to discover who they are. And it's pretty common for an elder brother... Um, to want everyone to be happy, 
in the family. I don't know if that's the case uh, for you, if you're an elder brother or younger brother or sister, but I know for me, I got an older brother, and this is a very stereotypical uh, situation. My brother was somebody that uh, stayed, you know, he, he, he stayed at home, he didn't get in trouble ever growing up. I can't remember him ever growing up. Right. <laughs> He's still like this big. Um, I can't remember him ever getting in trouble. He found his happiness and everyone around him being happy as well. He just kind of wanted to keep the peace. And me, on the other hand, I really was more of a self-discovery, as we'll call it, uh, type of guy. Someone that got in trouble. In fact, I brought a couple pictures. Uh, one is me and my brother when we were young. Um, this is my brother. Hold me. This was the last time he was really nice to me. So I thought I'd, I'd show that. And, oh, side note. Okay. My brother had a little baby boy who's six month old today. And there's a picture of our family. We were in Mexico over Christmas. And there's him. My brother's holding him. His name's Pepe. Um, and, or Patrick Jose, as it is, but we call him Pepe. And, okay, I don't know if this is common. He's six months old, and he weighs 25 pounds. He's like the biggest baby I've ever seen. Uh, I mean, there's at four months, and he weighed 19 pounds at four months. He's a giant kid. I don't know what's in that milk, but he is crazy. Uh, crazy big. Anyways, my brother used to, when we were kids, my brother really wanted to keep the peace, but I think he had this small rebel side. He used to teach me things, and then I'd get in trouble for him. Uh, when I was in kindergarten, he taught me how to flip the bird, you know, the finger, and uh, I can't do it in church. I just feel weird. I'm like, uh, no, I can't. Um, and then in kindergarten, I went and I got in trouble, and my brother, he taught me how to do it, and then told me to do it in school, and then came home and told on me to my parents. Got me in trouble, and uh, but uh, no, not cool. Uh, but uh, I think what you see is this pretty typical behavior at, um, between two brothers. The funny thing, though, is what we see out of these two brothers is they both are after the same thing. Both these brothers are after happiness. They're just looking for it in different ways. They're, they're both after the father's money, but they're trying to go about it in different ways. The younger son, by saying, hey, I wish you were dead, I'm just going to take your money now and go. And the older brother, by trying to be so good that eventually the father would reward him. So they're both after this money, and I think these are pretty, uh, two pretty common ways that we try to find happiness. Either by moral conformity, trying to be so good, or by self-discovery, trying to figure out who we are. Who, who am I? You know, I've got to go out, I've got to do my own thing, no one can tell me what to do. Be my own man, my own woman. Now, the problem with this is that when taken to the extreme, both of these are ways that we find ourselves not needing uh, a savior. One of those ways, you know, if we're the younger son and we take off and we, we, we run away and turn our back on God, we're saying, hey, I don't need a Savior. And also, if, you, if you're being so good to go, hey, I'm, I'm going to earn this, I don't need a Savior because uh, I'm going to be so good, all of a sudden you think you're entitled to, to certain rights. God, I've been so good lately. Uh, you know, you think God, God owes me answered prayers. You know, He owes me a good, a good wife. He owes me a good job. Good grades because I've been, I've been praying all the time. I've gone to church all the time and I've been so good. And you know what that is? That's not the recognition of a savior. That's pretty much something that we all do on a small scale is using the barter system with God. And trust me, I know I'm not the only one in here that, that sometimes uses the barter system with God and I wish I didn't do it, but I do sometimes, you know, when you go to class and you're like, oh my gosh, God, I didn't study at all for this test, but I, if you give me a 90% on this test, I promise you I will study as hard as I can for the next test, Anna will go to church twice next week. Anna will give away $10 to the poor this week. You know, or, or you think, oh my gosh, that girl's so cute. If you let her like me, I know you can make her like me. If you do, I promise you I will be very appropriate. I will act nothing but a gentleman to her. Uh, and I will treat her really well. 
I know that for myself, when I was growing up, I used to get in trouble in school a lot. I'd always be like, God, please, if you don't let my parents find out, I promise you, I will be a missionary someday. <laughs> I was writing humongous checks as a kid that I definitely could not cash. And I was like, God, I'll go anywhere, anywhere you want, if you just don't let my parents find out. But I think that, that, that we do this, we all do this on a small scale. And uh, when we try to act so good in a way to leverage God, we're doing this on a much bigger scale. And if you're like the elder brother here, you don't need a Savior who pardons you by grace because you become your own Savior. He may be your helper, your example, your inspiration even, but not your Savior. If like the elder brother, you seek to control God through your obedience, then all your good actions are just a way to use God so that you can receive the things you really want. Guys, sin is not just doing bad things. It's putting yourself in the place of God. As Savior, as Lord, as Judge. Both the indulgent way of the younger son, or the Gentiles, and the ethical way of the older son, or the Jews, are spiritual dead ends. They're both dead ends. But God shows us another way. He shows us another way through His Son. And this is, this is the final uh, thing I want to talk about tonight. And then pay attention here. Okay, is... is is there something else going on in this story? And I didn't notice this at first. I actually read through this story a few times, and I didn't notice it, but, but finally it came to me. I wondered why, when the younger brother comes back, does the older brother get so upset? I mean, he doesn't really lose that much. He gains his brother back. But then I was thinking about it, and when the younger son said, Father, I wish you were dead, I want my inheritance, in this culture, the older son would have received two-thirds of the inheritance. And the younger son would have been entitled to one-third. So when the father gives him that third, he has to sell off a third of his estate so that he can give that uh, to the younger son. And he goes and squanders that and loses it all. So all that's left is two-thirds of that estate. I made another diagram to show what this looks like. Okay, you got a whole estate. Okay, everything that the father had. And all of a sudden, the younger brother, they need to sell off a third of everything. Okay, so they do that. They sell it off. A third of everything is gone. Two-thirds is left. Everyone with me? Good. Um, two-thirds of the estate is left. And, and when the younger son comes home and they decide to throw a big party for him, where does the money for that party come from? It comes from the older brother's share of the inheritance. Now, forgiveness is given to the younger son, but forgiveness always costs something. And, and in, this, in this point, it's costing the younger brother. Okay, I, lent, I lent a friend of mine uh, my car the other week. Uh, I was gone for the weekend, and so I let him use it, and he got in a wreck. Uh, he hit the car uh, behind him, or hit the car in front of him, and dented in the front bumper. And he came and he was really sorry. And, and it would have cost a couple hundred dollars to fix. And it was just a dent in the bumper. And I was like, it's not that big a deal. So I was like, hey, you're forgiven. No big deal. And, and so I forgave him. But now the price that I pay is I drive a car around that has a dented bumper. So forgiveness always costs something. And in this story, the elder brother's not a very good elder brother. Because he's not willing to pay that price for his younger brother to come home. But in this world, we have an older brother who is a much, much better older brother. He's a brother that will pay that price for us. He's already paid that price for us. When we are running off and we come back and decide, hey, hey I want back into this father's house. Jesus Christ has already paid the price for us by being beaten and stripped naked and embarrassed and hung on a cross to die for the sins of the world. 
I think that one of the biggest things that we struggle with this, and I know I struggle with this as well, is in this relationship with God, as we discover what this is, we want to feel it more. And we want to feel it. We want to feel the power of God always. We want to, we want to feel that. I know I have conversations with people all the time. I just don't feel it. I want to feel it more. You want to have your heart moved in the direction of love, of joy, of repentance. You've got to comprehend the price that it costs to bring you home. It was a big price paid. Last week I got a chance to go down to Los Angeles and, and do a one-day pre-trip for the organization that we're going to be working with uh, over spring break on our South Central uh, mission trip, uh, which, by the way, still some spots available um, if, if you're interested in, in going down to, to Compton over spring break and serving for nine days on, a, on an awesome road trip. It's going to be a blast. But I got a chance to go down there for one day last week and serve with one of the the ministries that we're going to be working with on the street. And this was a ministry that, that brought in people uh, off the street and gave them food and got them plugged in just to a relationship, saying that somebody loved them and showing how much God cared. And these guys had been through everything. These are mostly guys who had spent a lot of time in prison, ex-gang members, folks that had been, had been arrested for murder, uh, rape, uh, armed robbery, guys that were addicted to just about everything. Guys who were beaten, lived on the street their whole life. And I got a chance to sit down and talk to a couple of these guys. And it was a very, very powerful thing as we started talking about what Jesus Christ meant to them. And after leaving there, I realized why it meant so much, why these guys were drawn to tears at times. Because they understood the price that was paid and they knew that they did not deserve it. That forgiveness. My question for us tonight is... is is do we realize that price that was paid? Do you? If you're just being good and trying to live this Christian life because you want to be able to leverage God to get the things uh, that you want, I doubt you're ever going to feel it that much. But that's why I love this Lenten season. That's why I love these 40 days leading up uh, toward Easter because it, it always points us back to the cross. And, and I always try to do something for Lent just because I want to be pushed back to the cross. I want to be reminded of the price that was paid. Like it says in Philippians chapter 2. You can put that up there, okay. Um, Jesus Christ, who had all the power in the world, saw us enslaved in the very things that we thought would make us free, so he emptied himself of his glory and became a servant. Not just for you, not just for me, but for all of us. None of us are too far outside this umbrella of grace that covers us all. That's the message of Romans 11. And we'll never stop being elder brothers or younger brothers until we recognize our need, rest in faith, and gaze in wonder at the work of our true elder brother, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, I know I, I need this reminder in my life. God, of, of the price that you paid uh, to bring me home. God, continue to, to remind me at times that I forget it, Lord, that um, this was no small deal. God, that you love me, that you love us so incredibly much, that you'll do anything. God, you'll come running after us to bring us back, Lord. Amen.